everyone. Welcome to Febrile, a cultured podcast about all things infectious disease. We use consult questions to dive into ID clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. I am your host, Sarah. I am a MedPeds ID fellow. And here on Febrile, we use patient cases and consult questions to learn about high-yield ID topics. I have our usual disclaimer that all presented patients on this podcast are inspired by patient experiences, but cases are constructed or significantly altered and de-identified for learning purposes. Today, we have something truly wonderful because we have a whole ID consult team here from the University of Minnesota, ranging from medical student all the way up to faculty. And so I'll give some quick introductions of our new friends here today. Leah Gorin is a current second-year medical student at the University of Minnesota. She completed her undergraduate education at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and majored in genetics. Her current interests include adult and pediatric infectious disease outcomes, clinical immunology, and hospital-based medicine. Next up, we have Dr. Alice Lehman, who is a brand-new MedPeds ID fellow at University of Minnesota. She has many interests across infectious diseases, however, is keen on learning about the intersectionality of ID with immigrant, refugee, and indigenous populations and how to better serve these patients. And last but not least is our faculty discussant today, Dr. Beth Thielen, who is an adult and pediatric ID physician at the University of Minnesota. Beth leads a translational research lab studying interactions between the human host immune system, respiratory viral pathogens, and respiratory microbiota. She completed her MD-PhD training at the University of Washington, where she performed dissertation research on HIV pathogenesis in the Department of Global Health. She then returned to Minnesota for both her MedPeds residency and MedPeds ID fellowship, where she acquired skills in molecular epidemiology at the Minnesota Department of Health and mouse models of influenza pathogenesis with Dr. Ryan Langloy. In addition to her interest in respiratory viral pathogenesis, she also has clinical interest in other infections of immunocompromised patients, travel and tropical medicine, and clinical immunology and the role that host genetic variation plays in the response to infectious diseases. Welcome to Febrile, everyone. So glad that you're here. Hi, uh, this is Beth Thielen. Thanks for having us. Hey, this is Alice Lehman. Um, Good to be here. Hi, this is Leah Gorin. Really excited to be here. I'm so, so, so excited. Before we start, we still are doing the usual question about, as everyone's favorite cultured podcast, can you share a little piece of culture that brings you happiness? So we're going to put Beth on the spot. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Sarah. Yeah, there's three kind of themes that I really like to talk about with my team, as as we have a team here on service with us uh, today. So one is really about understanding the places that our patients come from. And so I wanted to recommend a book called City of Thorns, which is about uh, the experience of of refugees in the largest camp in in Kenya, the Dadaab refugee camp, and sort of understanding that, which is a little foreshadowing for our case today. The second piece, I think, in this, this really tough last year and a half that we've had is about sustainability in, in medicine and something I really try to, to talk about with my, our trainees. And so a couple of things along those lines, um, the Happiness Lab and 10% Happier are two podcasts that really sort of talk about well-being and, and even the science behind well-being and how to live a, a meaning, sort of a, a fulfilled uh, life. And then the third part, because I know there's a lot of true crime fans on <laughs> On prior yeah, episodes. guilty. <laughs> so uh, I wanted to talk about one that I, I don't think has come up called Bear Brook, which is about using genetic genealogy to identify unidentified um, uh, victims of murder. So um, it's a little bit of merging science and true crime, which are two of my <laughs> favorite things. <laughs> 
Love it. Love it. So like you mentioned, we actually have a team of people here today. And so Alice is here as our MedPeats ID fellow that's on call. And you receive a page from our medical student, Leah, who's on the primary team, who has been caring for a two-year-old who actually is currently under anesthesia for biopsy of a lytic bone lesion. And so the team's working diagnosis at this point had been Langerhans cell histiocytosis, but they had received some surprising news on the intraoperative pathology. And so they would like your help to figure out how to interpret this. So I am going to throw it over to Leah, who will brief you a little bit more on the clinical history. So our patient presented to the emergency department a few weeks before with acute onset of right knee swelling and a limp after an accidental fall from standing as part of his normal play. And his parents hadn't noticed any problems with his walking prior to this episode. He didn't have any fevers or sweats, no other joint symptoms, and he's had a normal appetite for his age, and he's been gaining weight and height appropriately. His parents brought him to the ED um, where limp and knee swelling was confirmed on exam. His CMP was notable for an elevated total protein of 8.4, but um, otherwise within normal limit. His CBC was notable for a mild thrombocytosis to 500. He did have some elevated inflammatory markers with a CRP of 13.5, and the reference range for this lab value was 0 to 8. And he had an ESR of 59, and the reference value of this was 0 to 15. Plain films were obtained of his knee and revealed a lytic lesion of the right distal femur. The imaging was reviewed with radiology and orthopedic surgeons who were most suspicious for Langerhans cell histiocytosis due to the association with lytic bone lesions and recommended that the patient be scheduled to return for a biopsy. There were some challenges to getting this scheduled due to transport and work issues, but the patient ultimately returned several weeks later for the planned biopsy. The orthopedics team performed open biopsy of right femur lesion, but the team was surprised when the initial pathology actually revealed granulomatous inflammation, multinucleated giant cells, and caseous necrosis, not the expected findings of LCH. And they are paging you for help with initial management. Yeah. And so Alice, as the ID fellow taking this call, what are your initial recommendations? Thanks, Leah, for that summary. Um, And I I think there's a couple of things to address here because as a ID team, we're getting involved pretty late in the game. And so there's a couple of things on my list. And I worry a little bit when I hear caseous necrosis granuloma, histopathology. And then it really makes me think that this could be mycobacterium tuberculosis. And then my list kind of grows to What do I need to worry about in terms of infection prevention for suspected cases of mycobacterium for the OR team? And how exactly was this IND performed? I also am curious to obtain further history from the patient to know about the risk factors for mycobacterium tuberculosis. And then I I think worthy to talk a little bit about radiolucent bone lesions as well as granulomatous lesions and soft tissue and bone and kind of frame our differential diagnosis and work up from there. And now we'll kind of go into what labs we might need to send on this tissue that we have gotten from the OR. So maybe I'll I'll spend a little bit of time just talking a little bit about infection prevention. For this case, typically when there's extrapulmonary TB or we we don't really worry about aerosolized risk, but this changes when we're working in the OR and perhaps specifically um, when we're getting lesions taken care of, such as bone lesions and if they are drilling into a bone. 
And at this point in time, it's possible that the sample might become aerosolized. And so this would be something where I would be communicating with the OR staff that we would have to think about retesting them or even prophylactic treatment if we have a really high concern for mycobacterium. And maybe I'll also run that by my faculty at this point in time because it's something I hadn't thought about in a while and she might have like a little bit more opinions as well. Yeah, thanks, Alice. Yeah, so I think I think you really really point. I mean, I think this is something that often doesn't get thought about in terms of the risk of extra pulmonary TB and the infection prevention risk. And you know, a thing to note for trainees to know about is there's there are guidelines on sort of the prevention of infection in in the hospital. And this is this particular scenario of either like draining wounds um, that may be caused by TB or uh, internal lesions where there's sort of manipulation and potential aerosolization. These are particularly called out as infection risks. So definitely, I think definitely support your your recommendation to get our infection preventionists involved at, at this point. You know, given this the concern at this point, I think getting them involved and in managing this risk is is important. Um, I think had we known about this in advance, may have have guided our our teams to exercise respiratory precautions in place prior to surgery and prior to entering the, the space. We're doing we're doing what we can at this point to kind of help mitigate the risk moving forward. Um, a couple other ca- cases to to call out for infection prevention risks that people may not think about is even when there we think primarily ex, extra pulmonary TB, it is possible that there's concomitant pulmonary TB as well. So making sure that we've looked for that and so asking whether this child has had a chest X-ray and whether there might be pulmonary TB as well. He's young enough where his risk of transmission is probably low, but it can it can happen, particularly when there's cavitary lesions. So look, making sure we've looked for that I think is important. Um, and then oral or laryngeal TB can also be a risk. It's not strictly pulmonary, but could be a risk for transmission. So I, yeah, definitely support thinking about the infection risk early, given that this this pathology is highly concerning for some type of mycobacterial infection. Great, thank you. And then I think that kind of ties in nicely to thinking about what our differential diagnosis would be, both for the radiolucent bone lesions and for these granulomas. And they're quite similar diagnostic windows, but when we start to think about radiolucent bone lesions, we certainly think about infection. And this can be bacterial in origin, such as Staph aureus, Kingella, group A strep, strep pneumo, Haemophilus, Salmonella. And then you can also think of ende- endemic fungi, such as histoplasmosis and blastomycosis. And then certainly there's the MTB complex pathogens that can cause radiolucent bone lesions. And then, like our patient, there's neoplastic reasons for this as well. And they were thinking Langerhans cell histiocytosis, non-ossifying fibromas. There's also other bone cysts and fibrous dysplasia um, and other malignancies that can cause similar findings. And I think one of the key issues will be getting further history from this patient to better understand their risk factors for MTB. This includes where were they born and a simple question about where they came from and if they're um, originally from Minnesota or the United States. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, to pick up on that, you know, we're we're, um, getting that additional history, but I think we're already down the diagnostic path of thinking of some, you know, unusual infections and infections where volume of material may come into play as being a key for getting the adequate diagnostic specimens. And, you know, I think one thing doesn't take too long to observe is that we can go through tissue pretty quickly when we start sending a bunch of specialized tests. And particularly knowing that in many many cases, things like TB are sort of posse-bacillary and there's low organism burden. And so any things that we can 
do to maximize the amount of specimen available that we have to send for diagnostic testing is really is really helpful. You know, and I think thinking about handling specimens appropriately, making sure that they're getting we're getting fresh specimens that not the whole the whole thing is not just being put into fixative, but we're getting fresh specimens and volume adequate volumes. I think are things ideally would would be great to have conversations with the the team prior to the OR, but even now as as we're still potentially mid mid procedure that we can ask them to get as much specimen as possible and make sure that we're putting putting material aside um, to send also for additional molecular testing like 16S and 28S PCRs, uh, universal PCRs for different bacterial and fungal pathogens so that we can uh, hopefully, because this is an invasive specimen, we hopefully have only one, one shot at getting material for testing that we really maximize the diagnostic yield there. And I completely agree with your point, Alice, about getting additional history. I think a lot of these uh, really hinge on risk factors and knowing your host. And so anything we can do to kind of buff up our knowledge of, of the specific risk factors for this patient, I think will really help guide us moving forward. Great. Yeah, I, I appreciate your point on the diagnostics that we can send here. I guess I'll just kind of list my potential thoughts about what we would send. And a lot of it does depend on the volume and then both the sensitivity and the specificity of the test. And I think also if we're thinking about MTB, we would worry about like a test that would possibly give us resistance um, data as well. So I think I would send like an AFB stain and culture, and then I would do a fungal stain and culture. You mentioned the 16S, I would also send a 28S PCR to look for fungal elements, and then the mycobacterium PCR, as well as I think we could consider doing a carious, but at this point in time, I haven't really gotten a history of a febrile type illness in this patient where a blood might be useful. Um, certainly, if I am thinking about that, blood cultures and uh, letting the lab know to hold them longer, both look for fungal cultures as well as fastidious organisms such as brucella and streptobacillus. And then I think if we are thinking about those kind of atypical bacteria, maybe serologies as well, um, such as that for coxiella. And you had already mentioned a chest x-ray to look for any active TB. Um, and certainly in a patient where we're concerned about TB, you should think about their risk factor for HIV as well. And so I think sending um, the uh, rapid testing for that would be valuable. And then I guess the other point I want to discuss with my faculty would be if we have this clear pathology on tissue, would we have to worry about empiric or urgent therapy in this patient? And so is this somebody where our suspicion is high enough for MTB that we would consider doing empiric treatment for them? And it, given we're just getting involved in the case right now, there's a lot of data missing about this patient's risk factors that we need to acquire. But I would start to have that conversation with my faculty as well. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Alice. I mean, I think this is the urgency of antibiotics is always a good question. Is this something that needs to be acted on sort of immediately or sort of is it, is it an emergency, sort of an urgency or sort of a, as, as needed? And I guess I would put this patient maybe somewhere in, in the middle. I think, you know, things like that he's hemodynamically stable, is not febrile. I think we have a little bit of time and a lot of uncertainty here where I think taking some time to breathe and pause and just assess where we're at and get the collective 
collect the data, I think is very reasonable to give this, a, a, you know, a day or two. But I think um, particularly if there are strong risk factors for TB, things that you mentioned, I think um, with that pathology and, and maybe we'll hopefully very soon get some information about things like an AFB smear that should come back quickly or fungal stains that, that hopefully we'll get some some information back in the next day or two that'll help give us give us a point in one direction or the other. We can gather a little bit of this information to help us refine our risk estimates a little bit. But if things are generally moving in that in that direction of supporting this being a TB diagnosis, I think this is very much a, a patient that could be somebody that we would, would start on empiric treatment even before we had a definitive diagnosis. So the things, you know, in the guidelines for TB treatment, things that we think about as being risk factors are things like young age. He's right at the sort of threshold of two where we worry more about um, TB meningitis and severe complications that we're a little bit more aggressive about getting started on treatment early. Um, we have pathology that would be consistent. The case, uh, KZN granuloma certainly would be would be consistent. We we don't yet know the smear results or t- things like TB PCRs, which we may get back kind of fairly quickly to help us refine that. And, and we've known that this child has had some difficulties with accessing care. I think it sounds like there was some delay in getting in for the biopsy. So that too is a is often a risk factor. You know, something that's considered in the in the framework of thinking about when to start empiric TB treatment. Great, and I think like I want to get a little bit more history from um, Leah here to figure out what we need to do next. So our patient was born to Somali parents in a Kenyan refugee camp and then immigrated to the United States with his entire family one month prior to his presentation. His family had initially relocated to Georgia, but they instead decided to move to Minnesota because they heard about the large Somali community here and had several members of their extended family living here as well. He currently lives in a small community about one hour outside of the Twin Cities with his parents and four older siblings. His father works in a local meat packing plant and he spends his days playing with his siblings and other children in the community. As far as his past medical history, he's never been hospitalized. He did have malaria once um, in the camp, but he received oral treatment for this as an outpatient. His parents think he received the typical childhood immunizations, but they do not have any records for him. Our patient had a chest x-ray performed, and this revealed no pulmonary infiltrates or hilar adenopathy. He had a negative quantiferon test, but he did have a positive PPD, which was read to 11 millimeters. His HIV serology was negative, but he was found to be positive for Giardia and H. pylori as well. So what changes in your management do you guys think comes with this new info? I think this is a good opportunity to also talk about the specific risk factors for this patient, as well as potentially where they might have run into medical screening throughout their journey here to the United States. I think specifically children who are um, identified as immigrants or refugees are vulnerable for increased morbidity in our system just due to the real lack of awareness of their migration journeys and the indications for screening and treatment along the way. A lot of what this child um, may have encountered in the past depends on a legal status that they acquire. Typically, as people travel to the U.S., they are either protected under the status of refugee, where they are seeking refugee status as they're unwilling or unable to go back to their country of nationality, um, versus a, a person who has a legal definition of an immigrant, where this it may be a person that's leaving their country, um, sometimes by choice, but they wish to resettle and seek citizenship in a different country. So they don't necessarily have the same legal protection and screenings as a refugee. 
And so typically refugees are living outside of their country of origin in a refugee camp, which in itself is a a risky situation for small children. It's often overcrowded with poor sanitation or access to clean water. And so this in itself can be a risk factor for acquiring uh, infectious diseases. And then another consideration is that they both undergo pre-departure medical screening as well as arrival or domestic medical screening. And so I think this is a good opportunity to talk about what medical screening refugees run into as in a pre-departure setting, because having this information and knowing potentially what they're screened for or treated for is valuable in working up your patients. Often these are very difficult records to obtain as well, especially for uh, refugees who often like our patients are assigned to a resettlement city and then undergo secondary migration to a different city in the U.S. outside of their medical records and connected to connection to care, um, but where they have more community and family or friend support. To talk a little bit about the pre-departure screening or presumptive treatment in refugee children, before they leave to their resettlement city, they are screened for MTB. And this is typically done with uh, IGRA for ages 2 to 15 years of age. And then for 15 and older, they typically do a chest x-ray to look for any signs of active TB and can do a workup from there. Children less than 2 typically are not screened unless there's a clinical suspicion or history. These children also typically go presumptive selective parasite treatment depending on which endemic country they come from. So this would include such things as malaria, soil transmitted helmets, schistosomiasis, and strongyloides. Um, and that would be specific for non-loa-loa endemic areas. And they've also been implementing vaccine catch-up schedules for children and adults who are um, undergoing immigration via refugee status. And so if we look at our patients specifically, a two-year-old who came from a Kenyan refugee camp, he likely received a multitude of vaccines, including varicella, MMR, polio, Hib, PCV, and Hep B. And he also likely got albendazole treatment for soil transmitted helmets, as well as treatment for malaria. But since he's a little guy, he wouldn't have been able to get the treatment for strongyloides or schistosomiasis, because for praziquantel, which is the treatment for schistosomiasis, it has to be greater than four years of age. And then for the treatment for strongyloides, ivermectin, uh, typically there's no good data for children that weigh less than 15 kilograms. And then I think the other thing to talk about here would be arrival or domestic screening, which happens. And so this can happen both for refugees and immigrants. Typically, this has to be initiated by the provider seeing the patient. Refugees will get a post-arrival medical screening um, that's set up for them, but immigrants don't typically undergo this process. So the primary care doctor or wherever they encounter their first um, medical visit will have to be thinking critically about what to order. And typically what we do here is make sure they've been screened for tuberculosis with the same interferon gamma or TST if they're younger than two. I would also consider getting a CBC with diff because this is a good screening test for eosinophilia or hemoglobinopathies. A urinalysis is actually very helpful 
um, in detection of schistosomiasis. If you detect um, RBCs on that as well, it's something where you can consider getting serologies. And then certainly the typical childhood screenings that they might not have had, including lead, thyroid screening, chronic hep B screening. If you don't know their prenatal history or maternal history, considering HIV and syphilis screening as well. And then for the intestinal parasites, looking at a stool OMP, um, which doesn't always pick up Giardia, which is very common in our refugee population. So you could consider getting a PCR of that as well. And I might see if my faculty has anything to add at this point in time. That, I mean, that was such a comprehensive uh, review, Alice. A really, really nice job. And I will say, Alice was our global health, uh, Peace Global Health Chief last year, and I think clearly is demonstrating the wealth of knowledge that she has in, in that role. So um, I don't have a ton to add, but a kind of a few um, special points. So um, chronic hepatitis B is, is a real, is still fairly common in Africa. And I think e even though it is off, back, catch up vaccination is offered, it's sort of later and may miss the children that are chronic, you know, infected um, at the time of birth. And so um, I have seen uh, more than one case of a child that has been vaccinated, but yet still has chronic, uh, chronic hep B infection. And that's really important to, to identify because it does con confer a risk of uh, future liver cancer and cirrhosis. And, um, and so, and particularly that can occur uh, very can earlier in life in our immigrant and refugee populations. So I think picking picking that up and getting appropriate treatment and and protecting household members since it is quite transmissible, particularly if there's other children in the household or other. You know, he's playing, this child is one that's exposed to a lot of children, and I think it it is of, of the bloodborne infections relatively easily transmitted. So making sure that we're diagnosing it so that we can take um, precautions for for household members as well. I think. You know, the, the infections that we're seeing, the breakthrough infections that we're, we're picking up in this child, I think really nicely illustrate a, a point in ID, which is think about the antimicrobials that your patient has received and then think about the things that would, would be resistant that will break through that. And so we can suspect that this child likely received pre-departure albendazole um, and the infections that we're sort of finding in him, the Giardia and the H. pylori are things that we would be missed by that treatment and so we need to still think about. Um, but probably it's done a fairly good job of eradicating soil transmitted helminths that are he's, he's quite at risk for. Um, again, I think that CBC with differential is nice, not just for the eosinophilia, but picking up anemia, either hemoglobinopathies or chronic blood loss from those soil transmitted helminths. Um, and then, you know, thinking about a little bit of geog geographic medicine, so particularly knowing that in, in East Africa, there's a couple of species of schistosoma that are present, both uh, specifically uh, schistosoma hematobium is uh, localizes to the bladder. And so as Alice nicely mentioned, urine uh, red blood cells can be a nice pickup for that. There are other species that can also be uh, in the in the GI tract. And so pe people particularly coming from that area are at risk for both, and it merits looking for both. Um, Alternatively, a serology can be helpful for, for de denoting prior exposure, um, which wouldn't necessarily give a, an answer about active infection versus past infection. But in a patient like this where we, we don't think there was probably presumptive treatment, I think at this point, if he was seropositive, I would presume that this was an active infection and, and sort of think about treatment, which is, as Alice mentioned, praziquantel is we don't have data for this age, but I think I would love to to get a little more data on on what our as our i'm expecting our microbiology is going to be coming back and that we may have some updates there yeah so our patient did have a few labs come back his initial stains were negative for fungi acid fast bacteria treponemes and helicobacter 
His PCR studies were negative for mycobacterium tuberculosis as well as atypical mycobacteria. He was started on a four-drug therapy for presumed mycobacterium tuberculosis. And notably, his acid fast bacteria cultures did turn positive 27 days after his biopsy. This positive uh, acid fast bacteria on culture showed a positive mycobacterium tuberculosis complex by DNA probe, which uh, was then determined to be culture positive for mycobacterium bovis BCG by PCR. So we have the big reveal. It's BCG. A really interesting answer here. Uh, But now we want to see how you're going to tackle management moving forward. Yeah. So, I mean, this is uh, really a, sh- a shocker, I think, an unexpected. Yeah. I think everybody was sort of all in on the uh, MTB diagnosis. And, and it seemed like we got that initial, the init- as the report was coming in, got this initial little bit of information that it was MTB complex and then sort of a surprise to, to have um, BCG. So I think just to recap on where we're at in terms of treatment, I, you know, I think as Alice really mentioned that sense of, of maybe starting empiric uh, treatment early on and particularly in somebody that has risk factors. And so I think it was very appropriate this child got started on treatment with the information that came back, no alternative diagnosis and looking at having strong risk factors for being exposed uh, to TB. So now once we have this information that it, this is a uh, BCG, so that is derived from serial, that's a vaccine strain, a live attenuated vaccine that's derived from MBOVIS, so bovine TB. And so one of the features that's a little bit of microbiology trivia is that most MBOVIS strains are uh, resistant to parazinamide. And so based on this, knowing this lineage, um, we do, the team think it would be appropriate to stop that because we think it's, it's potentially conferring risks and side effects without expected benefit. Um, and now that we have a culture, we're expecting that we'll get some more information back on sensitivities that will help uh, guide our therapy. But for right now, I think keeping him on three-drug therapy is appropriate. In terms of uh, the a, l- a little bit of the sort of thinking about the diagnostic testing and some of the puzzling results, um, if we think back, you know, this child was positive for uh, PPD um, and negative for quantiferon. And I think in the retrospectoscope, this makes sense because uh, the interferon, the, the quantiferon or the, the IGRA testing, specifically uh, the mechanism by which it works is to stimulate the immune cells with antigens that are present in MTB. So things, the pr- proteins like ESAT6, CFP10, and CB7.7, and those are specifically not in the BCG vaccine strain. So that sort of gives us the specificity of that test. And I think in retrospect, it makes sense that that test, the, the quantiferon was negative because it, it, he was infected with something that, you know, that, that didn't have those antigens. Um, and yet the TB complex PCR is broadly encompassing. It's a different molecular mechanism. It tends to test the cat G gene, and that is present um, in MTB, but also MBOVIS, including MBOVIS BCG. And so I think in, in retrospect, it, some of our diagnostic testing actually does fit very, very nicely there. I did want to tell, talk a little bit about sort of why BCG is given and sort of the rationale for that. So as many of our listeners will, will know, this is a common vaccine given globally, not so much in the, in the United States. Um, but the, really the, the strongest analysis, the data that we have from several meta-analyses shows that it's, 
it's quite highly protective against severe disease, specifically TB meningitis in the little children, which is really the strongest indication for, for, for uh, why it is given. We talked a little bit about earlier about how children are particularly at risk for TB meningitis, and that can be fatal. And so that is sort of globally why the, why that, the vaccine is given. It's, the data are much more murky with respect to t- pulmonary TB and other things. But that, that's sort of the basis. And we presume based on where this child was born that he would have received the BCG vaccine you know, early, early in his life. Um, in terms of the um, risk for complications from the BCG vaccine, certainly we think about local reactions, but this case really nicely illustrates some of the, the more unusual um, uh, complications of, of BCG. And I think it, it really highlights the importance of thinking about the clinical syndrome and, and really making sure that we're correctly labeling the clinical syndrome for our patients. And so there's, there's sort of amongst the category of BCG complications, there's sort of the immediate local reactions. Um, and then I think what maybe people are a little bit more familiar with is the disseminated reactions and, and the worry that it could be uh, unmasked underlying skid in babies that are, are given this vaccine in the developing world where there's not screening. And so patients with skid or severe combined immunodeficiencies um, are at risk for um, sort of the infections that are controlled by cell-mediated immunity. And so um, even though BCG is typically controlled in an immunocompetent child, a child with skid can develop sort of an overwhelming fatal disseminated infection with BCG. And so certainly a manifestation of a disseminated BCG infection would be highly concerning for immunodeficiencies. Um, Interestingly, the literature has not generally supported an underlying immunodeficiency for children who develop BCG osteomyelitis. So this is is a well-described complication. It seems to somewhat vary depending on the strain of BCG that's used. So the history of BCG is it was sort of derived from serial passage, and there's all these different proliferating varieties or uh, flavors of BCG that have have ended up all over the world, and they differ a little bit in their reactogenicity and their complications. And so there's published sort of rates of of, um, BCG osteomyelitis, and it's a challenging diagnosis to make because it's often substantially delayed from the timing of BCG uh, vaccination. So much like uh, this patient case illustrated, it's kind of one to two years after vaccination is the typical time frame. Um, It tends to be lower extremities tend to be involved more often as it is in this case. Um, And it's not linked uh, with the site of BCG vaccination. So it's thought that the mechanism is is, uh, sort of a a transient bacteremia that then seeds uh, distant sites. Um, And so it can occur anywhere in the body, um, but particularly does seem to to be more common in the lower extremities. Um, And there's not we don't have great data on how to treat this. So typically it's treated with medical therapy. Um, in this case, I think um, we, this child received two, two months of the three-drug therapy and then finished off with uh, INH and rifampin for a total of six months of, of treatment and did quite well. Um, but I think it's, but it's not very well, we don't have great evidence to suggest kind of the optimal uh, duration of therapy, but medical therapy seems to be uh, curative in, in many cases. Um, and then I, you know, I think this question of immunodeficiency. I mentioned the the um, disseminated disease, um, but I also wanted to highlight for our audience because because I particular interest in the immunodeficiencies that there is a unique syndrome um, called uh, Mendelian susceptibility to mycobacterial disease um, that is has been associated with um, genetic disorder genetic disorders of immunity, um, and this is typically people who develop disseminated disease with non-tuberculous uh, species of mycobacteria. 
Um, and there's been over 15 uh, unique molecular defects identified as cause of MSMD. And those typically are involved, as, as you might expect from understanding the, the mechanism, immune mechanisms of TB control, it's typically involved in the IL-12 uh, signaling to interferon gamma production. So molecules that are involved in that signaling pathway, either as um, kinases like TIC2 or transcription factors like STAT1 or some an interferon gamma receptor. Some of these proteins have been linked to susceptibility. Um, and for the adult ID uh, folks in the room, um, there's a mimic that can present in adulthood um, of this genetic disorder, which is autoantibodies against interferon gamma. And so if, if you have patients, older patients that present with disseminated non-tuberculous mycobacterial disease, um, where they look like they should have a genetic disorder, um, it's, that's a time when you can look for autoantibodies, and that's uh, maybe the mechanism of, of susceptibility in those patients. Um, and so it, it just to, to, to clarify, though, in this patient with osteomyelitis, I think my suspicion, at least based on our current knowledge, is that it's not likely to be high yield looking for an immunodeficiency. Um, but of course, our state of uh, knowledge about immune deficiencies is always changing, and so I think this, this could change. But for as of today, I think we, I would not think that this child needs any particular immune deficiency workup. I love those nuggets about immunodeficiency and thinking about susceptibility to mycobacterial disease. And so whether or not that is the genetic MSMD that we often see in kids versus acquired defects like the autointerferon gamma antibodies in adulthood. Um, I've had a couple interesting cases thinking about this topic and had selected that to talk about in a presentation earlier in fellowship. Um, and I just think it's so fascinating. So we can add some summary papers about this in the consult notes in case anyone wants to learn more. So we have not only had an amazing case here, but we've been able to have a full ID team on the show. Um, and, you know, my hope for Febrile had been to highlight trainees and different fellowship programs and different faculty. And so I, instead of ending with sort of some extra pearls, I thought I would give us a chance and some space to talk about MedPeds ID. Um, but specifically for you guys, what is awesome about Minnesota and what are things that you would like people to hear about the program, especially if they're considering or currently applying for ID fellowship? I, I can start. So <laughs> <laughs> You, yeah, you really have all the layers of training here for Minnesota president, <laughs> president. But I have done most of my medical training at Minnesota, and I can say I think it's such a unique both academic medical center in the setting of an urban setting with a diverse population. And so something that uh, I love is taking care of patients from all over the world, um, but I also love being at home. <laughs> so. <laughs> So Minnesota captures that perfectly. We have a huge um, immigrant population here from Somalia, as well as a huge refugee population, um, Hmong and re other secondary resettled populations. So they bring a depth of um, culture learning as well as um, medical learning. And then specifically, and Beth can talk about this a little bit more too, but uh, the MedPeds culture here is um, well-grown and fostered. And their MedPeds pro program is one of the strongest in the nation and uh, has been producing MedPeds hospitalists, MedPeds subspecialists that are disseminated across the country. Love the use of dissemination. <laughs> <laughs> like any good infectious disease doctor. Um, yeah, I, mean, I, I have to echo what Alice said. I, I'm also a product of our training program. So I did both my MedPeds residency and my MedPeds ID fellowship here and, and love it. You know, we have a very 
diverse hospital training experience. So we go, we have a VA experience, a county hospital experience, a, a urban academic sort of center experience, and we do the same same sort of sites for our fellowships. So we, I think our our fellows come out with. Uh, a really uh, broad sort of training at burn centers, trauma centers, sort of all all the sort of pieces to see the type of the types of infections that um, that you're going to see in practice. So I feel like we come our our trainees come out very well experienced in all the different kinds of medicine. Um, I would also highlight we have an incredibly strong Department of Public Health. So as part of my fellowship, I actually worked interned at our Department of Health in their molecular respiratory virus um, sur molecular surveillance. Um, and so that is they just do incredible work and um, and are always really happy when we hear they hear about interesting uh, cases from us because it really prompts you know allows us to sort of um, bring in public health the public health perspective for outbreak uh, investigation, which I think is just a really cool a cool part. Part of, uh, of ID. And then our, our micro lab, we have a couple of really in our system have a couple of really innovative lab directors who are really at the forefront of kind of pushing pushing the envelope of what is uh, what we can do diagnostically and, and sort of helping us uh, partnering with the infectious disease physicians really uh, closely to help uh, hone in on that on the, the diagnoses that we want to make. So I'll and I think a really wonderful, supportive training environment. I think the interpersonal pieces, you know, making sure that our all our trainees feel like they're, um, you know, valued and are are balancing the work life and and the, the home life and, and feeling supported in that. Yeah, I just uh, to add on that. Um, I grew up in Minnesota, and so it's nice to be back here for my medical training. And uh, I just finished up my first year of medical school. Um, which was an interesting time given given everything that's going on, but everybody has been really supportive. There's a lot of opportunities here, um, especially for learners like myself, and uh, I've just really enjoyed it. And Minnesota nice is a thing. <laughs> um, so it, it's just been a great time, and thank you so much for letting me be on this podcast. Of course. Well, I mean, this is your contract that you have to do MedPeds ID now. So your path is laid out. That, <laughs> um, that, is, my, that is where my interests um, lie right now. So I, I think I'm in good perfect. shape. Perfect. Excellent. <laughs> um, well, thank, thank you to Alice, Beth, and Leah for joining us today. I had an awesome time. Thanks so much, Sarah. This is really a, lo a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you. Thank you everyone for listening. And again, to Leah, Alice and Beth for creating this wonderful episode. I warmly welcome any other teams or folks who want to come on the show to teach about ID and share about your program in a future episode. As always, you'll find the written complement to the show known as consult notes on our website at federalpodcast.com. And the website also houses ID infographics, which I try to post on Twitter and Instagram as well. So please reach out if you have any suggestions for future shows or want to be more involved with Febro. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and I'll see you next time.